The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to two hours of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. Wake up and dig in. Good morning, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. We're getting fresh this morning with ideas and inspiration to eat better and live better. And we hope to make you so hungry that you just might lick your radio. You can talk with your mouth full here every Sunday morning, beginning at 8 a.m., two hours of delicious conversation and fabulous food. Good morning to you, Lana. Good morning. We have a very full plate this morning and a very delicious one, so please stay tuned. You just might learn something. We're always serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com, where you'll find recipes galore, cocktail inspiration, football frenzied, creations and the start of fall with a fig and apple crisp and a few other comfort foods to get you in the mood. Let me tell you what is on your plate this morning. Coming up, one of our favorite culinary shows, those that we think are most addictive, Chopped falls under that category, no doubt. The Food Network's Ted Allen is going to join us. He's dishing on what happens behind the scenes, and stay tuned. He's got some great stories. Also, Chef Elizabeth Faulkner is cooking at home for fall, and she's going to disclose the newest information about her new restaurant digs in Brooklyn as well. You'll also hear the start of our series on how to photograph food. Photographer Bob Hodson is going to begin the series and share with you what you need to take the ultimate food photos. Coming up as well, owner and baker of Tate's, America's most beloved cookie, Kathleen King, will join us with recipes from her new cookbook. And you're going to hear about Sarah Fort's veggie lifestyle, brought to us from her blog, The New Cookbook Sprouted Kitchen Has Released. So please do stay tuned. We'll kick off this morning, though, with our technique of the week. We like to share tips and tricks from a chef's point of view to hopefully make your dishes come alive with flavor and I do truly believe that if you master the techniques then you can actually create any dish anytime that is full of flavor we love to cook in parchment paper and mom I have a lot of memories growing up of your very elegant dinner parties that you say now and have for years were very simply done Mm -hmm. because of parchment the French call it and papillote the Italians call it al cartoccio and we call it cooking in paper this very simple flavorful cooking method is a very lean and clean way to cook actually and i think it's a wonderful way to serve food because it's sort of like a present in a package i love the idea of individual parcels for each guest and the fact that when you're done you crumple up the paper and voila you have no dishes i mean this is really (laughs) brilliant right Uh, Fish or chicken most often work best in parchment paper, along with raw and sometimes par-cooked vegetables. You need some sort of liquid. That is the secret to cooking in parchment so that you create moisture in the parcel. That's steam, of course. And you need lots of aromatics to create fabulous flavor. Now, a quick blast in the oven and you have this perfectly cooked package of goodness, browned paper edges that always seem to delight a crowd. And there's lots of different ways that you can 
pack it up, essentially. Uh, well, you can add moisture by adding a high moisture content vegetable, such as spinach or tomatoes. Right, but if I have an opportunity to add a tablespoon or two of white wa- of white wine to anything, mm-hmm. I'm in. I also <laughs> consider a pat of herb butter or a drizzle of cream. Definitely so. Talk to us about paper, though, Lana, because you and I had an intriguing conversation about the different choices in parchment paper. There were very few choices um, some time ago, and the parchment paper movement has come a long way. In fact, at the Western Food Expo last year, one of the top 10 products rated by the Fancy Food Organization was a parchment paper bag, essentially, and it limited the need to crease or fold ever again Mm -hmm. because some very smart genius chef created a parchment paper bag that you could essentially fill, uh, crumple up, you know, at the edge and then bake. Mm -hmm. That worked out very well. But also you could use a bleached or unbleached paper. Mm -hmm. Both are sold on rolls. um, And I like to buy it in a roll because then you could uh, use the size you want instead of buying a cut sheet. I agree. As well. Um, So that's most important. Never use wax paper. If you don't have parchment, you could always use foil. But I tend to truly appreciate the beauty of parchment paper. Mm. And I'm not sure how I feel about foil. I'm all for a foil packet on the barbecue. Um, But if you're doing a tender, flaky, beautiful, fresh piece of fish... I would steer clear of aluminum foil Most only so. because but of a transference of flavors. There's just one recipe I use foil, which is uh, lamb. Yes. It's a lamb chop. And it cooks for uh, quite a while, mm-hmm. essentially, different than a, a piece of fish would. So I'm in agreement of that. Now, not only is the technique easy, cooking in parchment, mm-hmm. but it looks very impressive. And I think the reveal is very impactful. What you do, it's true. It's one of those like, wow, kind of presentations. You take the parchment paper parcel from a cookie sheet out of the oven and you carefully transfer the packets transfer rather the packets to dinner plates and then at the table you use a scissor to carefully cut an X in the top of the parchment and allow the steam to release. And then after that, I like to use my fingers to pull the paper down in segments, which exposes the main dish. Mm -hmm. You need a little fat to cook in parchment, by the way, like a drizzle of olive oil. You mentioned a compound butter, a small pat of butter, like think truffle butter or herb butter. Yummy. Um, Always, I think, a nice textural element to add. And it's also an easy way to add ethnic flair. If you want to add ginger and garlic or five spice powder, you have Asian essence. Mm -hmm. If you want to consider a store-bought Indian sauce, garam masala, or your favorite Indian infusion, then you can certainly add quick personality to fish or chicken. Mm -hmm. Now, these uh, pieces of parchment, you could get fancy with. You can cut large squares off the roll. You can fold them in half, and then you can cut a heart shape, which is how you taught me Mm -hmm. originally. If you choose to be a little more rustic, you can leave the paper in a square, and you can create all the way around, essentially leaving what is a rectangle Mm -hmm. at the end of your cooking and parchment uh, preparation. Right. The The shape doesn't make a difference. We'll get all puffy and slightly brown. Yeah, and I love that part. Mm -hmm. The most important aspect, though, of cooking in parchment is the art of crimping. Because if you learn to fold each crease to overlap over the previous one, you get a well-sealed packet. And sealing in the food is what garners you that very juicy, tasty result. So whether it's a simple salmon dish or you're doing cubes of chicken in a spicy sauce or even the simplest act of steaming vegetables to perfection... 
I definitely think with this uh, cooking and parchment tutorial, Mom, mm-hmm. we've got it in the bag. <laughs> Had to go there. Sorry. Couldn't help myself. We posted on the website at chefjamie.com a slew of recipes that we mm-hmm. hope will inspire you to cook in parchment paper. I make a salmon in parchment with fennel and olives, and I think it has wonderful fall flavor. Mm-hmm. You trap all the flavor and aroma in the package, and I'm a huge fan of fennel. I think it complements the fish beautifully. Mm. If you use uh, potatoes, yes. little baby potatoes, which slice, I do, slice them very thinly and put them under your fish for them to cook through. It's a good tip. Or I like to pre-cook the vegetables, so I'll steam or boil the potatoes specifically mm. and then put the par-cooked potatoes cut in half into the packet so that you expose the porous part of the potato, the mm-hmm. interior, to absorb some of the flavors. You can cook with rice as well in a parchment paper packet, but I suggest that you cook the rice in advance as well and use it mm. as a bed. And the same thing. I do a Mediterranean mahi-mahi. I know. Uh, it's very cu- delicious. With couscous. Yes. And so you could do that. And also a steamed trout with chive tarragon butter. Nice. It's very nice. I also posted a recipe for a spicy shrimp in papillote. And it's just very simple. Um, raw baby spinach leaves on the bottom and a mm-hmm. spicy tomato salsa. You can make it yourself or buy it. And then right over the shrimp. And the shrimp cook very quickly, by the way. I mean, we're talking about 12 minutes in the oven. Mm-hmm. Cooking in parchment is really a very quick cook method. And I do love that. We hope you master it. Share your best parchment paper recipes, you can always email us live, L-I-V-E at chefjamie.com L-I-V-E at chefjamie.com will get you to us. We hope that you will consider coming to cruise with us as well. We have just finalized our plans for our 2013 culinary cruise and would love to have you on board. I'm very excited. This is my fifth annual radio listeners cruise and September 3rd of next year, 2013, we embark on a Baltic Odyssey from Denmark to Sweden with food from Germany, Poland, St. Petersburg, Russia, and Finland in between. I will be teaching private cooking classes on board in the Bon Appetit Culinary Center on board Oceana. I think that's going to be the best part. Yes. Your menu for the cooking class is going to include fabulous food, such as a buckwheat blini with smoked salmon. That's all you're coming for. So Danish and (laughs) Swedish. I know you're only coming for the blini, Mom. I know it. (laughs) it. Uh, But truth be told, we've begun planning the menus, and staterooms start at just over $4,000 per person. It includes free round trip air to Europe, book by September 30 at the end of this month and you'll receive free gratuities and $100 shipboard credit. The cruise is being planned by Food and Wine Trails and you can go to chefjamie.com or foodandwinetrails.com and learn more. So please come cruise with us and do check out the website at Mm chefjamie.com because we are welcoming in fall. We're inviting it. We're, we're we're, We're hoping that with fall recipes we can Bring on cooler weather. Uh, and we are. And, we and are it's slowly working. <laughs> slowly working in. And my Cook with Lana segment uh, recipe is honey gingerbread Yes. this week. And that's such a great uh, fall recipe. I, I definitely think that that is an extraordinary way to summons fall mm-hmm. in the fact that you're bringing in all of those really rich comfort food flavored spices with cinnamon and nutmeg mm. and uh, just 
you know, all the richness of what gingerbread is, master it now and then make your holidays a little bit sweeter when you've mastered your gingerbread, whether it be for gift giving. It's a great mm-hmm. gift of food because it's a very moist cake that holds up very and it, well. And everyone seems to love it. Everybody does love it. Mm-hmm. And I like when you serve it, you make it in a spring form pan and you cut slices mm-hmm. or wedges of it. And I like that beautiful um, dollop of mascarpone mm-hmm. right on top just to cut through the spices. And it's a pretty simple recipe of adding the dry ingredients to the sugar honey egg mixture. Yeah, that definitely is. Mm-hmm. You'll find that recipe, Lana's Honey Gingerbread, and more at chefjamie.com. But stay tuned. We're improving your life one meal at a time when we come back. The veggie lifestyle from Sarah Fort. You're listening to the most delicious conversation on the radio. A good Sunday morning to you. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. Be right back. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. This is where informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation happens every Sunday morning. Sarah Fort is a food-loving, wellness-craving veggie enthusiast, and it's her blog called The Sprouted Kitchen that has created this beautiful new cookbook, just released a tastier take on whole foods by the same name called The Sprouted Kitchen. Not only are the recipes inspiring, really seasonally approached and lots of wonderful fruits and veggies to bring you health and wellness, but the photographs as well, spectacular, photographed by her husband, a Smithsonian accomplished and acknowledged photographer, Hugh Fort, you will find a hundred plus tempting recipes that do take advantage of the simplicity of the season. Sarah Fort joins us live this morning to dish and we're glad to have you. Good morning. Sarah. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Of course, the recipes do look mouthwatering, and we followed your blog, and we know that you love hearty, healthy recipes to share with family and friends, and they are very vegetarian focused. I feel really good eating more veggies. I really love that concept of a lifestyle, and that's definitely how you live. Yes, I think so. I think that I I feel better that way too, and I think for people that like to eat, like to eat more when they're more filled with fruits and vegetables as opposed to heavy things. So I thought we'd start at breakfast since it is the morning. There's a recipe Mm -hmm. in the book to start off the morning, a creamy coconut barley that you make with pomegranate molasses. And we'll go through breakfast, lunch, dinner. We'll have a whole meal together. How's that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us about the pearled barley for breakfast. Breakfast is my favorite meal, but I was trying to come up with some recipes that were the norm, but a little bit different. And I think with the pearl barley, I was trying to go for um, the sentiment with of oatmeal, how people just sort of like creamy, warm grains, um, but wanted to change the grain. So with barley, when it's pearled, it's just a little bit quicker to cook, and it still has that little bit of tooth that you get from like a steel-cut oatmeal, but there's sweetness from the pomegranate molasses. It's easy enough, but it's reminiscent of oatmeal and a little something different. I like that you're using coconut milk in it as well. We're great coconut lovers in this family. So whether it be coconut water or coconut milk, uh, my protein shake in the morning is made with coconut water. It's just that subtle reminiscent flavor of the sweetness of coconut. But I look forward to making the barley because I love that idea of the tart pomegranate molasses offset with the sweet coconut. Yeah. Just beautiful. Okay, we'll move on to lunch. Oh, actually, no, I want to stay with breakfast. This is a two-course breakfast. You make a baby spinach frittata, as we do very often. We make a farmer's market frittata, Mm -hmm. 
And Lana, I loved your last one. End of the season asparagus, roasted tomatoes and caramelized shallots, mm-hmm. right? Beautiful. Wow. What a great way to just clean out the refrigerator produce drawer. But you make a sweet potato hash crust. Tell us how to do it, please, for your frittata. Just chop the sweet potatoes into small cubes and just kind of saute that up with a few spices and, and whatnot to get that fully cooked and then leave that at the bottom of the pan and pour the egg mixture on top so the potatoes weight kind of stays at the bottom. So it's not a crispy crust. I know that sometimes people can do frittatas with like hash browns at the bottom, but this is sort of a, you still get whole chunks of potato and they're cooked through so they're nice and soft, but they kind of give you a layered effect of that on the bottom and then you have anything, the cheese and the eggs on top. You sort of get your hash and eggs all together and a big, beautiful frittata set out for a brunch or, you know, uh, cut into wedges on parchment paper. Um, Mm -hmm. Or I happen to love a frittata. We talk about this often, Lana, but you and I make it and then Mm -hmm. it lasts for the week. Mm -hmm. So I'll eat it cold. I'll slice it and warm it up for breakfast at the office. I think it's just a wonderful way to get packed with protein. Mm Mm-hmm. And Sarah's multi-grain carrot date muffins. (gasps) I saw those too. (laughs) Look marvelous. All the different grains that you've incorporated, Sarah. What a healthy breakfast. Yeah, I tried. (laughs) Yeah, you did a good job. We're big on farro. Do you have a favorite um, Middle Eastern Mediterranean grain? I don't know if I have a favorite. I feel like I try to use a little bit of each. I really like big grain salads, big quinoa salads or wheat berries or like you said the farro of using those along in with like greens to make it more filling so I don't know if I have a favorite but I like the kind that can kind of hold up in a green salad to make it more Mm. filling. Mm. I see you use a lot of couscous too we'll get to that we'll move on to lunch and we're coming to the end of the sweet tomato season and I know from reading your book that your household is not a raw tomato household no. so for one from what came of a, a CSA box brimming full of tomatoes you say came roasted tomato soup and the photograph is so beautiful the crouton on top is just overwhelmed with thick flavored mozzarella and then drizzled with um uh with basil over the top and that just looks luscious thank you so tell us about the tomato soup you roast your tomatoes first yes um i i can use a mix of any sometimes in our csa basket i get like the big heirloom ones or i'll just get a bunch of beefsteak tomatoes um and anything will kind of work once it's cooked and, and pureed up. It doesn't really matter what the size or the shape is, but I feel like that just takes a little bit of that raw edge off so it, when they're pureed into the soup, which is super easy. I'm sure if you read through the recipe, it's, it's kind of the epitome of like what I want to communicate through the book. You could go and get a can of tomato soup at the grocery store, but this is like, there's like two steps to it and you could just make it at home with wholesome ingredients and just roasting tomatoes and onions and a little bit of garlic and then blending it up and it tastes so much better than what's in the can and so much better for you. And there's nothing better than a piping hot bowl of tomato soup as comfort food um, after a long day or to warm you from within. One of the things in the book that I love that you do love as well is pasta and I want to savor this beautiful roasted cauliflower capellini what a great vegetarian approach we love cauliflower and mm. 
just the roasting of cauliflower brings out that beautiful inherent sweetness. And then you toss it with lots of different spices, a little bit of balsamic, some toasted hazelnuts, and the thin angel hair. That looks delicious to me. Thank you. So yeah, that was a that was a favorite too. Tell us about your love for cauliflower. I don't eat a lot of. I mean, besides some sweet potatoes, I don't eat a lot of potatoes in general, and I um, I feel like I kind of fell in love with it by by way of making the cauliflower mash, which I'm sure you've done of just substituting in some cauliflower and blending it up instead of using potatoes. Um, but I I had a a soup that we had made for the blog that was a roasted cauliflower puree soup that um, I got a lot of really great feedback on. You, my husband doesn't really care for it, but really loved the soup. And so I, I figured if I just didn't blend it all up, what if I used those chunks for some texture in the pasta? And it actually works really well because it's a lot of warm flavors with a little bit of the brown butter and the hazelnuts. And the cauliflower just works really well with the warmness of all the other flavors. Mm, what a great vegetarian side dish or even as a main course. You could throw in um, some kale or collards even and mm-hmm. add a hearty green to it as we embark on fall. Just looking for heartier dishes is really what my focus is. There's a chipotle and apple turkey burger that looks beautiful, and I'm thinking of throwing it on the barbecue. But let's end on a sweet note. You're definitely big on oatmeal. There's an oatmeal mm-hmm. ice cream sandwich in the book all wrapped up with twine and paper that I would be ripping apart to enjoy for dessert. And the cookie looks really simple, but really wholesome. Yeah, I think oatmeal is the most familiar kind of way to substitute in some white flour to change up that, break it up with some oatmeal. But most people already have it in their pantry or they know where to find it or it's inexpensive and things like that. So I feel like I throw it into cookies or desserts or things like that because it's so accessible for people and and I want that to I want things to be easy for people so it's not a deterrent for making something if it's something that's hard to find so I think oatmeal fits in with the flowers Hmm. Um, but in the cookies they are wholesome and that I love how the oatmeal kind of breaks up the smoothness of a cookie and makes it almost a little craggly if you will Um, and I feel like that it works very well with this because there's a lot going on with the ice cream and the little nuts around, so it, it adds lots of texture. Mm, nice. It looks so good. I'd have that for breakfast. Sarah, can we share the recipe? I'd love yeah, to post that one. Terrific. Yeah. We'll do so. You'll find Sarah Fort's oatmeal ice cream sandwich recipe at chefjamie.com, along with a link to the book. You know, we all aspire to eat healthfully, to cook creatively, and this book is no doubt inspiring. Vivid flavors and seasonal simplicity at the forefront front of the Sprouted Kitchen, the cookbook from blog creator Sarah Fort and her photographer husband, outstanding photography. I mean, really beautiful food photography. Sarah Fort, F-O-R-T-E, will get you her name to uh, the new cookbook you add to your collection. Sarah, continued success to you. Thank you very much for having me, Jamie. A pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, there's more after this, and you just might learn something, so stay tuned. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. You can join in on the conversation and even talk with your mouthful here. That's what we hope you love about this show. You know, everyone has their own story about eating beignets and drinking chicory coffee at Cafe du Monde. 
I remember last sitting on a park bench in Nolens, holding the beignet over the concrete to keep from getting powdered sugar on my black pants <laughs> or waiting in line when it began to drizzle and thinking, I am not losing my place to run for cover. Good food, good people, good stories. That is what Café du Monde is. What started as a show, theater, an event in New Orleans was a true celebration of food and an important part of so many people's lives based on their history at Café du Monde. And a book has been produced, an extraordinary compilation of recipes and stories and conversations based on the 2010 and 2011 live events entitled Meanwhile Back at Café du Monde. It was the creation of Peggy Sweeney McDonald, an actress turned event planner, but original Louisiana-based lover who knew that Café du Monde held more history really than anyone realized. And the book is just about to release. And we are delighted to have you, Peggy, to celebrate Café du Monde and all the wonderful stories. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. Definitely so. Okay, so... Give a little bit of background, if you would, because the timing of your book and the stories themselves from great chefs and uh, dignitaries and more throughout the book actually does celebrate a great history. 150 years of Café du Monde this year, right? Yes, Café du Monde, it's their 150th anniversary this year and also the 70th anniversary of the Fernandez family owning and running it. So I was so grateful, you know, when I had this idea... For this show, this live food monologue show where people have come together at a restaurant and share their life stories about food, my idea was what would I, you know, what would I call it? And I remembered I used to, when I lived in New Orleans, I used to always go there and pick up my mug and say, meanwhile, back at Cafe Dumont, dot, 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 and we would laugh. And so that would, of course, would have been my monologue because it's about no matter where I live, no matter what's going on in my life, I always end up back at Café du Monde taking life one beignet at a time. <laughs> so I called the Café du Monde and said I had this idea for the food monologue show, and I'd love the permission to use their name. So they, I sent them an outline. They loved it. And, of course, um, they gave me permission for the live shows and also for the book. And it just happened to coincide when I signed the contract last year to, to produce the book. A month later, I got their catalog for the Christmas catalog, and in it said, you know, it's our 150th anniversary in 2012. And I thought, oh, my gosh, my book's coming out in 2012. So they actually gave me their history and their vintage pictures to include in the book. And Karen Benrood, who's the granddaughter of Mr. Fernandez, who, who um, you know, is now deceased, well, her, she actually wrote the foreword to the book, and she's um, now she's been actually we just did the first ever cookbook festival in the quarter, and she did her foreword as a monologue all about growing up with the cafe. It's really an incredible history as we talk about Cafe Du Monde that has touched so many people's lives. Oh, so so many people's lives. Like Karen says in the book, you know, if her daddy didn't come home smelling like beignets, she knew something was wrong. And it opened 10 years before electricity. So if you can imagine, I mean, they didn't even have electricity back then, and they opened this cafe. So everyone has a Cafe du Monde story, either a Cafe du Monde story if they've been there or a food story about their own Cafe du Monde. Like my husband said to me one day, Cafe du Monde is really a metaphor for that place that you always go to, your comfort food place, no matter where you live. You have a place, like if you go back to your hometown, or even in the place where you live now, that place where you, where I say in my monologue, when I go to Cafe du Monde, I know what I'm ordering, I know it's delicious, 
and I know I'm with good friends and family, and for at least that hour, I'm in the moment, and life is really wonderful. And, you know, that's what Cafe Dumont is to me and so many people who have ever been there because it's not just about the, the delicious beignets and coffee. It's about the music you hear. It's about the humidity and heat of New Orleans. <laughs> it's about the smells of the gumbo and red beans coming down the street. I mean, it's just everything about Louisiana and New Orleans that's so delicious. Mm. Peggy, last time we were there, there was a trumpeter standing outside playing. Yes. And all of the waitresses running around in their white paper hats. It's just all so memorable. You know, that's the first place I go to. I flew in from L.A. to Louisiana. I'm going to be based at my parents' house in Baton Rouge, where I'm talking to you from now, where I grew up. And I'll be based here for the book tour, of course, is going to kick off in the South. I'm going to be all over Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. And for three months, I'll be here. Well, when I flew in on Thursday, I got to the New Orleans airport. My girlfriend picked me up. I stayed in New Orleans for the Hungry in the South conference this past weekend in New Orleans. And the first thing we did, I gave her the little book sample to look at. And she saw the cover of the book, which is the beignets and the coffee, you know, the big, delicious, you know, they say, you can't judge a book by its cover. Well, this book, you can judge it by its cover. And she was looking at the book, and she goes, let's go to Cafe Dumont. I haven't had beignets in a long time. <laughs> so we, like, went there, like, you know, immediately. And that's where we went. And we sat there and I ate my whole order of three beignets. She had her own order, and I had my own order, and I ate all of them. You should be proud, (laughs) Peggy. I always am, to finish the bag and then crumple up the white bag and throw it in the trash. Oh, well, you know, I'd have to sit there. I don't get them to go in that bag, although we did have them. Karen brought them to the cookbook festival, which is (laughs) down in the French market this past Sunday, and she actually brought them. And I actually ate them cold at the end of the show because I always, during the show when we do the monologues on stage, I always have like a plate of beignets and the mugs and the napkin holder that has a recipe on the side. So actually they were sitting there for like an hour and a half and I still, I still, you know. You still ate them. (laughs) Of course. You know, everyone has a story. I love in the book that um, Leah Chase, the legendary Creole chef and the owner of Dookie Chase restaurant in New Orleans, which was flooded during Hurricane Katrina, closed for a couple of years following the disaster, has her stories that she maintains about Café du Monde. Um, Some of the greatest chefs that we know and love today, some of the rising stars, and then some of the legendary ones. Uh, We have a friend in common as well, Peggy, um, the great Emeril Lagasse, who I'm so proud to know and cook Uh with for so many years. (laughs) He's so wonderful. I tell you, when my girlfriend Alden... And if you, when you read my monologue, Meanwhile Back at Cafe Dumont is my monologue, and I talk about how I first moved to New Orleans with my New Yorker husband, and we planned our wedding at the cathedral, and I started, like, gaining weight because of all this great food in New Orleans. And so I needed to find a walking buddy. So Alden lived in my building, and we became friends. And so we would get up and meet at 6.15 and walk to the quarter from the warehouse district where our, our apartment building was. And we would walk around Jackson Square and back, and the first time we came around Jackson Square, she said, oh, my God, in her cute southern, you know, Gulfport, Mississippi accent, do you smell the beignets? I could eat a dozen of them. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her, and I said, I know. I think of them as little pillows of decadence, and we should bring some money, and next time we can get some to go at the takeout window (laughs) and eat them on our way back. Well, we never ate you know, we never did indulge in our power walking, beignet eating fantasy, but we would talk about recipes and we would talk about our favorite restaurants. And, you know, I remember this one recipe she told me, easy crawfish pasta, where you take, you know, Velveeta cheese, rotel tomatoes, <laughs> crawfish, and pasta. And she said it was so great that, you mm-hmm. know, people would practically lick the pot clean. And then I say, 
Um, what's funny about this story is that I've yet to ask my girlfriend, who married a very famous New Orleans chef, if she ever made that easy crawfish pasta. Yeah, for I think Emerald. I think we should ask Emerald. Anyway. I love that. You know, Peggy, it's the pineapple upside down cakes, the crawfish cardinal, the uh, tequila shrimp, the blackberry bourbon Boston butt, which will have you running to the store for the ingredients. All of these recipes tied in to Peggy Sweeney McDonald's newest book release. It is called Meanwhile Back at Cafe Du Monde, and it will definitely just stir up all of the wonderful memories that we hope you've had sitting at a table in Nolens, eating beignets, drinking chicory coffee, making memories that are indelible and so many yet to come. And, and Peggy, we love that a portion of the book's proceeds will be donated to Liberty's Kitchen. Yes. Oh, yes. And Liberty's Kitchen, you know, Serena Johnson's in the book and her story is so wonderful about how she, you know, went there. To, they take at-risk kids off the street and teach them how to cook. And then she won John Betch's scholarship to go to culinary yes. school in New York. Quite and now fabulous. she's back. She's back in uh, New Orleans, so I can't wait to see her. She'll be at the book launch party. We're actually doing, you know, a big book launch party in New Orleans on October 16th, and a lot of the chefs will be cooking, you know, preparing their food. Chef Matt Murphy oh, from yeah. Irish House, Antoine's Michael Reguard. Jealous, 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 Peggy. Well, congratulations to you. But you yes. know what? We'll, we have a bunch of events coming up in January back in, in California, yes, and so hopefully y'all will be, the book launch party for LA will be at South in Santa Monica on January 15th, so you have to come. We'll look forward to meeting you and to celebrating, meanwhile, back at Café du Monde. It will make you laugh, it will make you happy, it will make you hungry, all the great things that Café du Monde does. Congratulations to you, Peggy, and continued success in uh, telling your story. Thanks so much. We thank you for listening as well. There's more to learn, more to laugh laugh at, uh, and more to digest right after this as the delicious conversation continues. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Don't go away. Nothing like waking up to a little stones. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio, bringing you all the flavor every Sunday morning and serving up seconds all the time at chefjamie.com. Pictures are truly worth a thousand words, especially when they depict something like a a Zinfandel braised short rib over brown butter parsnip puree with chive oil and a pomegranate reduction. Sound good, Lana? I thought so. Even better in print, this conversation, well, maybe not better, but just as good. Uh, The following conversation right now, right here, is kicking off our series on how to photograph food like a pro. And here to share the tricks of the trade is our esteemed friend, professional photographer Bob Hodson, who has spent the last 28 years shooting the food industry, people, and food. He is the creator of Chef's Insight, a website that tells a story of chefs through photos from a photographer photographer's perspective. It's a very raw behind the scenes vantage point of the creative process. And I'm proud to be featured on chefsinsight.com right now. In fact, we have received so many questions on how to shoot a great picture of food, Bob, that we're delighted to launch this series with you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) Okay. So let's start at the beginning. We're going to spend the next few months creating a really talented food photographers out there. And we're going to talk about everything from the cameras to the lenses, to the lighting, uh, to everything that you can do to make your photos better. But first and foremost, if we want to express the flavors that our palette captures, do we need a really expensive camera? 
Not at all. I mean, uh, I've always come from the, um, or my thinking is basically that it's not the camera at all. It's the person that's handling it. Hmm. It's the mind behind it. Yes. Um, I've done uh, many shoots with pro cameras, and I've also done them with the uh, point-and-shoot cameras. And uh, the outcome is different only in the terms of maybe the quality. But, uh, no, you do not need an expensive camera. Okay, so can you throw out a couple of names to get us all started? If we want to begin taking great food photos, uh, around what do we have to spend? And are there a couple of really great point-and-shoots out there? Well, yeah, there are. I mean, I've told, over the years, I've always pointed everybody that wanted to go a step above, say, the point-and-shoot camera to use the, uh, the Canon Rebel. Um, I'm a Canon photographer, always have been, so I'm always going to promote Canon products. Nikon is just as good, and all and, and all cameras are really, you know, are really good. If the lenses are sharp, then you you know you've got a great starting point. But the the Canon Rebel is a great camera. Um, they think it can run anywhere from uh, 800 to 1200 dollars, I believe. They have kits out there that come with the lenses, the cases, um, even a flash, a pop-up flash on it as well. Um, that's going to get you a really great image. And you don't have to think. I mean, there's still a program on it. So if you don't want to go into the manual side, you can go on the uh, program side. Um, now, with the point-and-shoot, the power shots are great cameras as well. Um, and, they've, and they vary in range from probably 350 on up to 1000 Yeah, inexpensive for sure. <laughs> and what if you are sitting at your fine dining dinner and considering that you're going to pick up your iPhone and snap a photograph, we all do it. So what if you are using your phone to shoot? Well, the cameras in the phones have definitely gotten a lot better. Yeah, they've I mean, come they, a long way. Yeah, they've come a long way. Well, they, and they've, um, they've enhanced how they can shoot in low light, which is good, especially if you're in a restaurant, because you definitely, and the first thing I'll tell everyone is don't use the flashes on your camera. Hmm. It is definitely not the way to go. You're going to kill the food. You're going to flatten it. You're not going to help promote, sell the taste. The smell is definitely not going to come through that image. <laughs> oh, sh- I, thought, I thought you were going to give us tips for that, Bob. Yeah, right. Well, there is. <laughs> and if you recall, uh, I remember having lunch with you and Lana, and uh, we were sampling uh, some dishes, and we were sitting under a skylight, and I had my iPhone, and I was shooting them, which I believe, you know, I emailed to you after. Yes. But I remember that through the course of the lunch, the light had ch- was changing, yeah. and so you had to keep moving to make sure the light was right on the dish. And, you know, what I find, well, hey, I tell everyone straight out, if you want to shoot a picture, you need light. Right. Mm-hmm. So take the dish to where the light is. And that's one of the things you've always taught us is we ask for a table by the window mm-hmm. closest to natural light so that we don't have to use the flash, and we do move the plate I mean, it doesn't just remain stagnant in front of us. We'll move it to the other side of the table so that we capture the best light. There was one other thing, Bob, that you taught me a long time ago, and I don't know if you recall this, but it's something I have never forgotten. There is a proper way to hold a camera or even your iPhone or whatever device that you're using. You told me to make a stance like a tripod. To hold it steady, use your hands, get your elbows closer to your body. Put your get your elbows on the table. Yes, or get your, your feet or legs firm if mm-hmm. you're standing, because it really makes a difference in the photograph. Uh, that's funny. No, you're definitely right. I'm sorry. I'm just visualizing you doing all this in the middle of a restaurant. Um, <laughs> Shameless, really, yeah, um, isn't it? No, it's definitely true. You definitely have to keep the camera still. 
um, especially with the iPhones or any of the phones that are out there, because mm-hmm. you know, as you hold the phone and you press that button, any movement whatsoever is going to shake the camera, and that's what I see a lot of is a lot of a lot of images that have that movement look to it. Right. But the more steady you get, obviously, the better image you're going to get. And what happens is when you don't use the flash on whatever device you you, you pick. Um, the light is going to be so low that the technology out there is going to give you a shot regardless of shake, you know. Uh, of light, of, yeah, of anything. It's going to give you an image. Yeah, and, th- and that's the brilliance of it. We're going to continue to perfect your food photography with our ongoing series with Bob Hodson on how to shoot food. So you've got the camera. Go do your investigation. Invest in what you feel is the best camera for you and then continue to listen. We're going to talk about lenses and tripods and lightings and reflectors and even pop-up cubes in the weeks to come. Stay tuned for more with food photographer. He's a people photographer too, Bob Hodson. And do check out chefsinsight.com. It is an extraordinary website from a true talent that enlightens you to the tricks of the trade through photography and a story and Bob I'm so very proud to be part of it and we thank you for sharing your passion there's more to come as the delicious conversation continues stay tuned Chef Jamie went along with Lana grab a snack and come on back Welcome to the second hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. Food enthusiasts rejoice. This is where the most passionate food and wine lovers congregate. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, teaching you all the right moves from my kitchen to yours every Sunday morning, beginning at 8 a.m. Two hours of delicious conversation and fabulous food coming up this hour. Everyone's much loved the favorite host of Chopped, I think the most addictive show on the Food Network. Ted Allen is joining us. And not only does he have beehives on his roof, he's a damn good cook. So stay tuned because he's going to dish. Also, Elizabeth Faulkner is cooking off the clock. She's sharing some of her best recipes for cooking at home. In fact, with a wonderful roasted and raw carrot salad and lots of wonderful introduction to fall, you'll find the recipes, by the way, posted at chefjamie.com. But first, she has become the cookie maven. I will say she has the number one selling packaged cookie on the market, and it all started from her South Ham Long Island Bakery. Take a listen. We caught up with Kathleen King of Tate's a little bit earlier. Yes, that is the sound of a good, crisp, clean bag that just came out of the Tate's Bake Shop cookie container. The whole wheat dark chocolate in the studio as we speak because if you set out to find the country's best chocolate chip cookie, if you sample hundreds of different versions, then you will come to know that the best tasting chocolate chip cookie 
comes from Tate's. If you happen to be in the Hamptons and you stroll around the charming village of Southampton, there's this colonial era building that's framed in flowers. That is Tate's Bake Shop. It is a dream that started with Kathleen Tate when she was just 11 and has become a huge cookie empire. The New York Times says that a destination, Tate's Bake Shop, is worth putting miles on your odometer, and I love that. Even greater, Kathleen is sharing the wealth because her newest cookbook has just released called Tate's Bake Shop Baking for Friends, and it's over 120 scrumptious recipes from Southampton's favorite baker, and we are delighted to have Kathleen King with us to share the virtues of her baking and her passion for the very best cookies. Kathleen, welcome and good morning. Thank you, Jenny. Good morning to you. Good morning. It's so nice to have you on the radio because um, we think we know you every time we open a bag of cookies. <laughs> we really do. Um, tell your story, if you would, because you did start professionally baking, essentially, at 11, and it's been a, a lifelong legacy now. I don't know if it's quite professionally, but uh, at the <laughs> farm when I was 11 years old, my father said I was old enough now to buy my own clothes for school. And I should be baking these cookies and selling them at my dad's farm stand, which, of course, I did because, no, it was not an option back then. And I just started baking and selling cookies, and I got into high school. And by that point, I was baking 10 hours a day and selling my cookies in the, in the summertime. And I, you know, I had wanted to be a veterinarian, and I realized that wasn't going to happen for me. So I thought, well, I have something with these cookies. And I went off to a two-year college, and when I came back to Southampton, there was a fully equipped bakery for rent, and I went into business when I was 20 years old. Wow. Good for you. And I'm baking cookies. Yes, and you've been baking cookies ever since. But I love that the, the concept of what you do has always remained consistent in that... It's not a fussy, stressful, long-winded recipe, or recipes right. for that matter. It's really the simplicity of your recipes that's making the cookbook such a success, and I think the beauty of your cookies as well. Yeah, I'm pretty authentic to, like, my recipes kind of speak about who, who I am and how I, how I live my life, and I believe in keeping everything simple and clean and, you know, natural, and mm. I think that you can eat well and, and eat homemade uh, without spending a whole day on it. I mean, really, to make a, a can of brownies from scratch, opposed to making them from mix, I really can't tell you how one is better than the other. It's in the same time to me. And, of course, in the end, you get a great product without all sorts of additives to it. Yeah, there's nothing better than home-baked. Give us some tips to making the ultimate cookie. Uh, what are the top few mindful ideas we have to keep in mind. These are the basics that I think could never be repeated enough. Yeah, the basics, of course, is check your oven temperature. Ovens, they vary, so always use a thermometer in your oven and make sure that your oven temperature is correct to the recipe that you're creating. Uh, use use all the best ingredients that you can afford mm. to buy. I, I always use salted butter. I know that's a no-no in the bakery world. It's just what I've always done, so I still do it, and I still say it in the book. But I noticed that it I noticed that in the recipes, Kathleen, and and that is very uh, sort of anti-pastry world today. You know, we it talk is. a lot on this show about using unsalted butter so that you can regulate the salt that you add to your food. But yes. your cookie recipes in the book call for, as do all your sweets, salted butter. 
Yes, and it's just what I've always done with my roots. And even though I've learned now that, you know, you're supposed to use, I, I just don't because that's what I've done. That's how I made my success, and that's still what I'm, so I'm just sticking to it. <laughs> and there's no additional Good salt for you. added. Yeah, she's sticking to her roots. I love that, too. There's no additional salt added to the recipes. It's a very interesting approach. So let's advise our uh, home cooks. Yes. If they are using unsalted butter, how much salt would you add to the, to the cookie recipe? That's a great question. Can well, you translate for us, Kathleen? Yeah, well, the, the, you know, if you look online or in the books, it says a, a quarter teaspoon per uh, four ounces or a stick of butter. But personally, I find that too much. Ah. Interesting. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, if, uh, that I would use probably... An eighth. An eighth of a teaspoon of salt translated to every stick or four ounces of butter if yeah. you're choosing to go unsalted right. if you in the recipes. Right, if my recipes and use unsalted, then I would right. use an, an eighth uh, more of salt. Good tip. Good mm-hmm. tips. There's also some wonderful tips in the book, too. I love, you need to know your oven. You know, you have to sort of get friendly with mm-hmm. your oven. And if you find, Kathleen mentions, that your cookies brown too quickly on the bottom, stack the sheet of cookies on a second baking sheet. Be sure to cool your cookie sheets in between. And then give us a couple freezer tips. If we can't bake fresh dough every day, Kathleen, how can we still savor the sweetness? Well, um, the recipe I have in my cookbook called Chubby Tates, um, and I call them that because chubby the, the original Tates are very thin and, and crisp, and the Chubby Tates are chewier and a little fatter. And I love to make that dough, and I pan it all out with an ice cream scoop onto my sheet pan, and then I, I put them all close together, and I put it in the freezer. And then when they're all frozen, I put them into a Ziploc bag, which we call individually quick frozen. And this way, when some friends come over on a Sunday that you're not expecting, and you put on some soup and some bread, and you take, you know, four or five cookies out, and you can bake them right from the freezer, just take the frozen dough balls, put them right on your your sheet pan, bake them in the oven, and you have warm cookies for dessert, and mm. everybody thinks you're a rock star. Yeah, and, and it's the most simple thing. I'm mm. convinced that's the only reason people come to my house, Kathleen, <laughs> because I do that, and, you know, I very much believe in the IQF, or individually quick frozen yes. process, and it applies to cookies, but yes. I want you both to know that I'm starting... Mom, you want to come over later? I'm making Mm. Kathleen's maple, bacon, and date scones. What a combination. (laughs) That's perfect. Those are incorporating all the flavors of fall and and it seems like fall. You know, it's not pumpkin in there, but uh, the maple and the bacon, it reminds me of when I was a kid. I used to take two pancakes, put my bacon in the middle Mm -hmm. of the two pancakes, Mm -hmm. and then cut it. Like, of course, I had to make that into a major cake also. But those flavors still resonate with me. That doughy bacon. Oh, sounds fabulous. I've even once made uh, bacon chocolate chip cookies, which are really delicious. Oh, I think that should be your next next cookie in a bag. (laughs) Yes. There we go. I love your coconut custard pie. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We got several requests for that uh, at the bake shop, and so I decided to develop that finally. It's, It's a very memorable taste. Yes, yeah. and, and yeah. it's the big flakes of coconut or like the coconut chips. Yeah, that... I like using those opposed to the shredded. Yes. They, there's no extra sweetness in them. And as much as I love sweet, I just don't like things too sweet. I like to taste everything that's in mm. 
the recipe, and I like it to come through, like with our chocolate chip cookies, you taste the butter, you taste the vanilla, you taste the caramelization of the sugar, and you taste the chocolate. It doesn't just taste mm. sweet. And I would like to taste everything you bake. So we will <laughs> run on over. over. Thank you. Um, and wait in line, as all great uh, sweet devotees do. It is the authentic essence of Kathleen King's baking that comes from her upbringing on Long Island, her return there, uh, the joy that she finds in sharing her chocolate chip cookies in a bag, a green bag. You should look for the Tate's name if you don't already know them. They are just truly extraordinary decadence, whether you like the crispy or the chubby. And every market carries them now. Yes, and Bristol Farms, you'll find them uh, easily accessible. Um, she is, and her cookies, uh, definitely um, an icon. And it's now the fact that you can make her recipes yourself, I think, that is bringing uh, great joy to food lovers mm. everywhere. And what a great success story you are. Yes. Congratulations oh, thank you. to you, Kathleen. Thank you. Kathleen King, the Hamptons' most beloved baker in print form now. Look for Tate's Bake Shop, Baking for Friends, the cookbook recently released. 120 scrumptious recipes from Southampton's favorite baker. Can't wait to bake those cookies, Kathleen. Oh, thank you. Let me know how you make out with everything. Definitely (laughs) so. As the delicious conversation continues, thanks for sharing the sweeter side. There's more after this. We'll take our last bite, so don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. We believe that food is life, so create and savor yours. What a coup to have Ted Allen for the first time right here in In Your Radio. We do have the biggest culinary thinkers on this show. He is an Emmy Award winner, author, and host of Food Network's Chopped. His new cookbook is a huge hit. It's called In My Kitchen, 100 Recipes and Discoveries for Passionate Cooks. He is a journalist since 1997, having been a contributing writer to Esquire magazine, and his philanthropy is extraordinary. He donates his time to several national and local charities, and we find it quite honorable that he does it all. We're delighted, too, that he's joining us on the West Coast for the upcoming Savor the Central Coast Sunset event. But even better, we have him here and live right now. Ted, welcome, and it's so nice to meet you. Well, thank you. What a generous introduction. Uh, that was, that's very, very kind of you, and I'm super excited to come back out to, uh, to Sunset Magazine for the festival. It's coming up the last weekend in September. It's my birthday, so I figured you were celebrating the 28th for me that day. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Sure, sure. At the renowned Santa Margarita Ranch in San Luis Obispo County. Um, it's definitely home to the celebrated Paso Robo wine country, so we know you'll be drinking and eating well. And it is, I think, the best West Coast food event. Tell us what you'll be contributing this year. Oh, well, I know I'm going to be judging some competitions. I'm going to be doing a, uh, uh, I think I'm doing a cooking demonstration, mm. and I will be uh, signing copies of my new cookbook, um, which is called In My Kitchen. Um, and whatever else they'd like me to do, I think we're having a press conference. We're going to have a discussion, mm. um, a sort of press conference, where I think we're going to talk about some current issues in food. There's so much... There is so much more conversation about food these days, isn't there? It's very true. The politics and organic and and artisanal farming and feedlots and all those things we need to try to work get away from yes and and we try to touch on all of those topics here 
on the radio to try to bring foodies closer to their ingredients, closer to their dishes, closer to their resources. Is there a particular topic in the food world that you find most interesting today? You know, I think in terms of food issues, I'm most excited about the fact that the First Lady has brought so much attention to healthy Mm. eating among children and exercise and planting that garden on the White House grounds. I think sends a great message. I'm so glad to hear people like Mark Bittman and Michael Pollan talking about how cooking with your family and your friends, to me, it's an act of joy. You know, I don't think of cooking as drudgery. There's almost nothing I'd rather do. Let me just tell you a funny thing. Last night, we had friends over for drinks, and they stayed kind of late, and we had nibblies, but we didn't have a full dinner. So we just just needed a little bit more. I had in my freezer French onion soup made from beef stock that I made myself with bones that I bought in the store and roasted. I thawed the soup. I put it in the bowls. I took some cheese, not the right kind of cheese. I had manchego, uh, but whatever. I sliced a couple slices of baguette, threw it in there, threw that under the broiler. I thought, my gosh, that is pretty amazingly cool (laughs) to be able to throw together melty, gooey, cheesy French onion soup, homemade, on the fly. (laughs) That's good munchy food. That, That is really, I will say, that is the impressive talent of a great cook, in my opinion, to make something from nothing, something from the freezer, something from the pantry, and put it together, and then be really impressed with oneself that <laughs> I know, you I was, put out no that you put out this beautiful french soup i, I was I, I did sound a little a little smug there but i love I, but that because I, I was but you know what here's the lesson uh and i know we all know this but yes. it bears repeating all those forces in the food industrial complex that tell us the only way to eat conveniently and quickly is to buy packaged processed junk yeah, is they're, they're wrong they're wrong is they're wrong lying. They're costing you extra money. They're making you fat. Mm. They're putting too much salt into your body. The way to cook naturally is to use resources like your freezer. Yes. And when you make, when you when you roast a turkey, throw the carcass in there and make stock out of it later when you have time. Okay, I'm just going to give you an amen on that because yeah. I have preached for so many years that prepared food comes from your own kitchen. It's your advanced preparation. And just so you know, I'd be glad to come over for French onion soup anytime, Ted, when you're, oh, you know, goodness. inviting friends. As the host of Chopped, we would love to know sort of an insider's perspective. Take us behind the scenes, because you're in your, I don't know, like 811th season or something now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you. Here's here's one thing, and I I, I don't know that this is a secret, because I think you can tell. The judges and I have developed such an affectionate uh, relationship. We have nine regular judges, uh, only three of whom work at one time. So what I'm about to do on the the 23rd, I'm going to have my annual chopped judges barbecue here at our house. And, gosh, last year it was so, i got to say, if you have friends who are chefs, you need, we all need friends who are chefs, you invite them over for a potluck, and you don't have to do anything <laughs> uh, except try to find, here's the funny thing, Chris Santos came over here last year with a cooler approximately the size of a human coffin that was just stuffed with ribs and shrimp and chicken thighs, and, and we ate like kings. Zakarian made a salad of... Heirloom tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes and white peaches topped with stracciatella, which, oh. which for listeners who may not know is sort of like burrata cheese. It's a very soft Italian cheese, very fresh with cream added to it, very decadent. Yes, it's very indulgent. Oh, oh, love it. And love so it, love is it. Jeffrey, mostly self-indulgent. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I was going to say, then, what is it like to have Zakarian in your house, in your kitchen? It's wonderful. Yes. You know, all the, Jeffrey is so generous. 
I tell you, almost nobody knows how to entertain and graciously and make everybody have fun and feel feel happy than Jeffrey. But they're all like, this is why, and you're a chef. You, 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 the, this is why we surround ourselves with these people. That's... It's all about joy and celebration and discovering new ingredients. and The beauty of life, I agree. Yeah. What is it like to watch these competitors sweat it out over the mystery ingredients? I think that your mystery baskets have become more unique as the food world has evolved. And we're seeing really more and more uh, very interesting ingredients thrown into the mix. I'm glad you feel that way. I, You know, uh, Rob Bleefer the, uh, with Food Network's culinary department, he's the one that assembles those baskets with, uh, with his committee. And, you know, they're chosen quite deliberately. They're not random. They have an, uh, he has an idea in mind with each basket of ingredients, no matter how horrible it may seem. It, he finds ingredients that even Alex Gordashelli has never seen. <laughs> not That's often. a talent. That's uh, a it, talent. Uh, I'm telling you, you know, these, we're, all of our judges are not just chefs, but truly truly world-class chefs they've seen a lot but every once in a while we stump them that makes it fun and i think you know we i learn a lot watching these competitors cook uh and and talking with the judges about gosh what would you do you know Mm. with bologna and cigars and peanut butter and you know perhaps blue ribbon go Go and throw in a hot dog or two, if you would, because that was one of my favorite episodes with the firemen and hot dogs and oh, a, yeah. a, lasa- a fresh pasta or a lasagna sheet. Just amazing to watch hot dog bolognese come to life. It, re- <laughs> it really was. Um, we'd like to see more of your dishes come to life, Ted, and we hope you'll come back and join us and highlight the beauty of your new cookbook, because I would love to go into your kitchen. You are such a cook and such a host and I love the quote where you speak about the kitchen being the most special room in the house a place for adventure I very much agree and your new cookbook called in my kitchen Ted Allen's 100 recipes and discoveries for passionate cooks is available now and it's for people who want to roll up their sleeves he says crank up the stereo and get your hands dirty in the kitchen we love it and we'd love to have you back to share the beauty of it Um, we will look for you at the upcoming Sunday Sunset Magazine, Savor the Central Coast event. Tickets are on sale now. It's a weekend pass that will give you a taste of really the beauty of the Central Coast, the biggest names in food, of course, um, led by Ted Allen, local chefs and wineries, and a variety of opportunities to really see lifestyle trends and to learn from the food and wine and home decor and gardening side of Sunset Magazine. It's the last weekend in September, and you can learn more at Savor centralcoast.com and then you can always get closer to your food I love your website Ted just terrific tedallen.net thank you and I, this, this festival is really one of the most beautiful ones I've, I've ever been to hmm. uh, of course this time of year you know we, we're getting into the crush yes. uh, harvest has officially begun in wine country uh, you know there's a little bit of a nip in the air at night and, hmm. and you, you make a little fire and hmm. have a glass of this it's Pinot Noir I guess I guess I have to put down the rosé and pick up the Pinot Noir yeah it's that time it is definitely that time but I love Pinot Noir Paradise so when you come back we'll pour a glass and sit down and dish a little longer how's that 
That sounds great. We would love it. Thank you again, Ted, for sharing your passion. It was a delight to have you here on the program, and we look forward to seeing you at Savor the Central Coast. I look forward to it, too. Thank you so very much. As the delicious conversation continues, you heard him here. Everybody loves Ted Allen. How could you not? Chef Jamie went along with Lana in your radio. Stay tuned. You just might learn something. We'll be right back. We do have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, back in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. It's been way too long, and we're so delighted that Chef Elizabeth Faulkner is back with us. She's up to grand things. You know her as the chef, author, and restaurateur, also the next Iron Chef finalist. And she's come out with a new book that I just love. It's called Cooking Off the Clock, and it's recipes from her downtime. What do chefs cook for themselves when they get home and are faced with the same dilemmas that you have, time and resources and costs? Well, Elizabeth is always reinventing dishes, and this wide-ranging collection is really Really a wonderful a collection of recipes for every day. And the book is just terrific. Congratulations and good morning, Elizabeth. We're glad to have you. Hello. Good morning. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the making of cooking off the clock, because these are really the recipes that you make at home. I'm really just cooking so much at home. Um, even though I you know, work in a restaurant all, all day, I, I want to make something interesting at home, and I don't really just come home and want to stuff myself with something. I want something good and that's good for me. And so I just, this book came out of just genuinely saying, gosh, I like a lot of stuff that I do cook at home. And, and oftentimes I kind of bring some of that stuff to the restaurant. I didn't want to dumb down recipes for people, but I wanted to say, look, I, when I'm at home, I cook stuff in a short amount of time too, because I don't, I don't have lots of time to labor over it. But I think about it and I think about when I'm at the market, what am I going to cook this week? What am I hungry for? What am I craving? Sure. And what am I inspired by? And I think that is a collection of what I have here in this book. And I do like to explore a lot of different cuisines. And sometimes I just want to tackle something that I feel is kind of mundane and, or I see it everywhere. But I think, what, you know, can we do something more exciting with that? And that's exactly what you've done. I think that this book is really like your culinary voice. We're embarking on fall. And I found this recipe of yours for the roasted and raw carrot salad with the toasted cumin vinaigrette. And I am a carrot lover. And it seems like the most mundane vegetable. But you really bring it alive. You know, I think that at, in San Francisco, certainly when I was there, um, but I'm seeing it in, you know, I live in New York now, so I'm, I'm seeing a lot of the seasonal produce here, although I know the seasons are shorter and that I'll have to take my carrots and can them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Always um, delicious. Yeah, and approach things differently. But when I, I'm just, I love seeing all the, the fresh produce in a, in a farmer's market. And then I also think, even if I can't get all that, can I just take some orange carrots and shave some of them raw and really try to bring out that sweet and bitterness of them and then also roast them and really bring out the the sweetness and and add some other acid to it that's just going to make the whole thing sparkle a lot more. I love the idea of mixing the raw and the roasted because we love to roast root vegetables all throughout the fall season. There's something just very comforting and hearty, but thin strips of the carrots uh, that you actually roast and then toss in together in a salad really adds that rustic, wonderful flavor. It's also the season of soups, and I think that's my favorite chapter in your new book. And in fact, tonight um, we begin the Yom Kippur celebration or Mm -hmm. the end of the Rosh Hashanah holiday for the Jewish New Year, the Break the Fast. And uh, your matzo ball soup seems rather fitting. It is, and it's actually... You know, I, I'm a big 
fan of matzo ball soup. I, I crave it kind of more than I, I do really like chicken noodle soup. And I don't have a Jewish background, but I love a lot of the foods from that whole part of you know, history in the world and, and what a lot of my, what I've seen around and what I, you know, I just, that's what I crave. But I wanted to make it, uh, and I'm also, I'm such a, thinking about root vegetables, I'm such a beet freak. Like I love beets <laughs> in so many different ways. And um, I think that the beets are what really make this, soup like so exciting because it really just changes the color obviously it does when when we were looking through it elizabeth lana and i noticed matzo ball soup and then this gorgeous pink rosy hue and your first thought is hey what's that and the addition Mm -hmm. of beets in the recipe you use turnips as well um you know lots of that wonderful rich flavor and caraway seeds too Mm. lana which i love the red broth with the matzo ball against it and vegetables is just beautiful it is it's a gorgeous sight and it's still, it doesn't become borscht, you know, it's not like we don't, I don't put any um, cream in it of any kind, or it's just really about the matzo ball and the texture of that and the lightness of it, and then having that chicken, you know, broth base, but having those other vegetables in it, and I think that's what makes it um, just kind of stand out a little bit more. Oh, that's a nice change. Very yeah. nice. What's your secret to a light, airy, fluffy matzo ball? The main thing for me is I just really don't overwork any kind of dumpling. Mm-hmm. I think that's has a lot to do with it. I like a little uh, club soda in there. I know some people yes. have told me, you know, you have to put a little bit of mushroom. Some people, I mean, people have all these different little tricks and stuff, but for, I've always just had a really good luck with them, um, particularly if I use a little bit of, uh, like, chicken fat and mm, then yes. that club soda. And that just seems to want to hold it all together perfectly, but not just so, so crazy mixing those eggs. Yeah, not over mixing. Elizabeth, I'd like to talk more soup too. You make a winter squash soup with an apple butter toast. And I love that while the soup is simmering away, you make the apple butter and then you spread buttered toast with this apple butter along with this winter squash, just rich, hearty, gorgeous soup. I can imagine the flavor right now. Maybe I was just dying to move to New York. So it's like, or it's cold enough in San Francisco, right? Because, uh, it's, it's definitely a kind of soup that I see in much cooler weather yes. than what, it, what I typically experience in California. It's also like that I start thinking, maybe I'm still, you know, the filmmaker inside, because uh, I did study that a long time ago in college. But I, I, I think about these scenes more than anything, and like that's just the, the food that comes into my mind when I'm thinking, oh, it's cold, and I want to have this. And then it's, it's playing off of some of the spices and, you know, that stuff around Thanksgiving that I think the apples and squash, they just go together in Mm. so many different ways. Oh, and warms Um, the soul. Lana, you're going to want to make Elizabeth's corn soup, and I'll tell you why. Not only does it look just absolutely velvety and gorgeous, but the topping is a combination of cocoa nibs, Mm. porcini mushroom powder. This is where she had me. And then it goes on to black sesame seeds with sugar and salt and truffle oil and creme fraiche. And just the combination of the mushrooms on top with the cocoa nibs of this velvety corn soup looks mm. outrageous. Oh, that is dinner tonight. Oh, does that <laughs> look good? A lot of times, you know, recipes are based on my own nostalgia or, or experiences from over time. And um, this one definitely relates a lot to just growing up as a kid and going to Missouri where my grandparents had a farm in, in the summertime. And my grand, 
Grandpa grew corn, so we'd run around those cornfields, and that smell of the earth being plowed with mm. the corn, it's kind of like when I go out to a grassy field that's been mowed, and it reminds me of all my years of playing soccer. Hmm. It takes you right back to that scene. It's like ratatouille, you know? Yes. So that combination of the corn with the sort of earthiness is what mm. I was really trying to bring out there, and Beautiful. it is a really good soup that you could even make, even if you don't have fresh corn, you can just use cornmeal. Oh, a lighter polenta, basically. Love that. Okay, could you teach us how to make gnocchi in a matter of a minute or two? Because yours look fluffy and beautiful on the tines of a fork, and they're all coated with this walnut basil pesto, and I could eat that for breakfast right now. I know. Well, the secret to making good gnocchi is roasting the potatoes, not boiling them, with their skins on. And I use russet potatoes, just plain big russet potatoes. I poke them a few times to let some of that steam escape because you're trying to get rid of the moisture inside the potato. And then um, I will, when they're hot, I peel off the skin and then I put them through a food mill or a ricer or um, one of those like oversized looking garlic press things, which is also like a little ricer. They're a cheap little thing to have, but they're perfect. That's what you really need to do to make gnocchi. And you rice the potatoes through there, let them cool because you don't want to use the water, the steam that's coming off of the hot potato. And you mix in flour and a, and a little bit of egg. I would say like one egg to two potatoes and a little bit of nutmeg, maybe a little bit of Parmesan and salt and pepper for, for just the seasoning. And then um, just knead it together with some flour. But when I say knead, I don't mean knead like a bread dough. You want to just make it malleable enough so that the potato is not sticking to your fingers, potato and egg. I mean, you're making a pasta, but you're using some potato starch in the mix. Without overmixing. Without overmixing. You don't want to knead it like a bread dough. And I, I see people do it all the time. Restaurant people do it all the time where they just overwork that dough and then they're, they end up being chewy little dumplings. And they're still good, but they're not nearly as hmm. lightly handled as this kind of dough. I'm just attempt- want to bring that dough together. Yes, I'm attempting your recipe, just so you know. Uh, and I can't wait to master it because they look luscious. There are wonderful recipes in Cooking Off the Clock, the new book from Elizabeth Faulkner, recipes from her downtime. And there's much more going on in the world of what many call truly one of the top culinary minds in America. There's more with Elizabeth Faulkner right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen and along with Lana, don't go away. It's delicious, it's divine, it's food and wine. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, in your radio, continuing our inspiring culinary conversation with Elizabeth Faulkner. Her newest book, Cooking Off the Clock, is on shelves and websites available now from Amazon.com, getting rave reviews. We know that you have uh, new accomplishments and aspirations to share as well. We're very excited about Crescendo Brooklyn. Tell us about the new restaurant, please. Crescendo is, uh, first of all, it's spelled with a K, so it's K-R-E-S-C-E-N-D-O, and that's because crescendo is a musical term meaning getting stronger or louder, growing, and I certainly feel like that's what's happening in my career right now, and also my business partner, Nancy Puglisi, this is really her dream project. She's the owner, and she's from Brooklyn, has a, a piece of a restaurant in San Francisco called Tony's Pizza Napolitana. Long story short, I've been friends with them. I'm a big fan of that restaurant. I got certified as a pizza ola, with an A, because that's female. Um, earlier this year, I went to Naples in May and won a pizza competition, first place in the classic Italian division, the first American to ever do that. Yeah, congratulations, congratulations. by the way. That is super cool. We've had Tony on the show. He talked about every pizza dough he's ever made known to man and all of (laughs) his pizza ovens. It was quite extraordinary conversation. It's amazing. I've never met anybody quite like him who's just obsessed with all these different styles of pizza. That's what's exciting about pizza, I think, in the world right now is that here you've got the Neapolitan style, which is like the, the original pizza, you know, from Naples. And then 
you go throughout Italy and there's different, there's the Roman style, a thin crust, you've got a Sicilian style, which is more like focaccia with a lot of olive oil on the base and you almost get like a crunchy texture if it's baked right with that olive oil. And then there's a Detroit style in this country, there's New Haven style, like we all know Grimaldi's in, in Brooklyn is really famous for mm. that sort of coal oven, crunchier thin mm-hmm. crust pizza. Tony does one of those, amazing one of those too. And then there's this Detroit style, this deep dish Chicago, there's all these different styles and they're all totally different. And Tony does a really good job with all that. I have a chapter in my book on grilled pizza because I feel like grilled pizza is the only way to go at home yes. if you want to get some of that char mm, on, your, on your dough. So good. So this restaurant kind of came out of Nancy and I talking about how she wanted to do a restaurant in Brooklyn. And I said, well, I love, I'm so into pizza. It's all I ever want to eat, pizza and pasta. So let's do a, a restaurant that's not exactly like Tony's, but it has some pizzas and it has some pastas, and I, I think I've just fallen more in love with both of those doughs, and I talk about it a lot in my book where I'm in love with all these different dumplings and noodles and stuff, and and I think that's really where, where I'm, you know, obviously I've been into all kinds of doughs most of my career being a pastry chef, right. but I've, you know, I like doing all kinds of cooking, and I like working on, in the fire, I love work, working in these wood-burning ovens, and I think I've just become more fine-tuned and detailed, focused on, on specifically pasta and pizza doughs right now, and if, but of course I have a, a fun... Um, antipasti and salad and appetizer menu because there's so much to I feel like when you go to a restaurant and you get that salad and if somebody just wants to perform a little voodoo magic in hmm. your first course it, it happens in that salad or soup course and then you know I, I I'm, of course I wouldn't let you down in the dessert department so well fun, most certainly fun. not we didn't expect <laughs> anything less oh. from you I have some fun twists on, on a lot of uh, classic southern okay. Italian dessert stuff. Oh, Ooh. such such as? Yeah, we want a little taste. Well, I'm do, I've am i been working on a uh, sort of plated version of cassata. Cassata is a very Sicilian cake. It's beautiful, and it's, you see it in a lot of um, pastry shops, particularly here in New York. That it's ricotta cheese. It usually has like a pistachio sponge cake and then marzipan wrapped around it and lots of candied citrus. It's very, there's so oh. much citrus in Sicily and for me, it's like being coming from California and being focused on the sort of southern region of Italy is totally makes sense because there's a lot of similarities in the in the kind of food stuff that I've kind of grown up around, sure. and um, and especially all the citrus notes, notes in the mm-hmm. olives and the almonds and pistachios and okay, uh, okay, you know, okay, we're in. We'll taste <laughs> it. Twist our arms. We're looking forward to experiencing Crescendo Brooklyn. When we come in next month, in fact, in October, for the New York Wine and Food Festival. Yeah, you, you will be open the end of this month? Yes, we're opening at, at the uh, end of this month. We're doing Atlantic Antics, which is a big street fair in Brooklyn that runs Fine. all up and down. You know, the new Net Stadium is um, really, we're kind of halfway, halfway between um, the East River Edge and the new uh, Barclays Stadium where the Nets new home is. Oh, super cool. Well, we wish you, of course, continued success. We know it's going to be uh, an extraordinary culinary experience. We know also the coming up that you are celebrating the 20th anniversary of Women Chefs and Restaurateurs, a wonderful organization that supports women in the culinary world. And January 16th through 18th, there's a a big to-do going on in San Francisco. Uh, Just give us a a website or some information, Elizabeth, so we can learn more. Yeah, womenchefs.org. And uh, I'm, I've been a member since its inception uh, 20 years ago. We did the first conference at, in San Francisco. This is the 20, 20th anniversary coming up, and we're going to have a big culinary competition that I'm uh, putting together with some other um, celebrity chefs. Kat Cora and Amanda Freitag will be there. Carla Hall will be there. Um, and it's, gonna, it's just going to be fun. It's, a, it's always just we have great um, seminars and, 
and uh, we have Mel Newman, who's going to be the keynote speaker. Um, How great! From Newman's own, and uh, and it's it's just it's a great organization that really promotes the education and um, connection of women in this in this business. And I thank you for your continued plight in doing so because you've paved the way for other women like me to continue to transform the way that people cook. And you are no doubt doing that one recipe at a time. Elizabeth Faulkner's new book, Cooking Off the Clock, is available now to add to your cookbook collection. And CrescendoBrooklyn.com will give you information about her soon-to-open Brooklyn restaurant. Elizabeth, it's always a pleasure, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. When you come to New York, come to Brooklyn. Oh, definitely so. We wouldn't miss it. Okay. We will definitely be heading to Brooklyn on our next trip to New York, but we hope you'll join us here in the Sundays to come as the culinary conversation continues. This is Cooking and Entertaining from a chef's point of view. And next Sunday, you'll hear from pastry chef Abby Dodge. Her new book is just released, Mini Treats and Handheld Sweets. We're going to talk beer and fall food, and you're going to hear from the Food Network's much-loved Scott Conant. Well, at least much talked about. He's a good friend, and we're going to dish on the New York Wine and Food Festival and everything he loves about fabulous food. He is adored. I've never seen anyone Twitter that much, Mom. Uh, You can find me on Facebook and Twitter, by the way, at Chef Jamie Gwen, and be sure to check out the website at chefjamie.com. For Lana's honey gingerbread recipe this week, also my Sunday game day chili with cheesy cornmeal dumplings is posted along with a fig and apple crisp, so don't miss it. There's more delicious conversation coming up in your radio next Sunday, so please join us. And until then, we thank you for listening. A very happy fall season or the start of it to you. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off on behalf of myself and Lana. We hope you continue to eat well. <laughs>